word. Our passage this week is going to come from Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have will not come to poverty. Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And they fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all the, his brothers and wept upon them. And that his brothers talked with. After that, his brothers talked with him. I was hired uh, maybe six or eight months after graduating college. I got my first full-time job as a youth pastor. So however old I was at that point, 22 years old, no one should have hired me as a pastor at 22, not only because of my age, but because of my maturity level, but that's another story for another day. But maybe a year or two into full-time ministry, uh, it came to my attention that another person who was on staff with me had uh, had a meeting um, with our boss, with the executive pastor of, of the church. And in that meeting, where in which they would be reviewing like their job and responsibilities and what they're doing and whether they're doing whatever, uh, said staff member um, spent significant time um, criticizing me for the job I was or was not doing. Now, at this point, you ought to be asking yourself questions like, well, Cody, did you reject that gossip when it came to your ear? 
and confront the gossiper? No, I did not. You might ask, did you go directly to this person and, and, and ask what were the facts? What actually happened? What was actually talked about? The answer is no, I did not. I mean, who wants to know what was actually talked about? That kind of gets in the way of my truth, right? You might ask yourself, you know, did you go to the boss and ask, well, if this is the conversation, why did you let it continue? What, you know, all of these things I could have done. And the answer is, no, I didn't do any of those things. I was a coward. I went to my office and I brooded over it. I thought about all the ways that I was better than that staff member. All the ways that I was a better pastor, that I was doing better ministry, that I was uh, a better human, a better Christian. I didn't have time to figure out facts. I was too busy planting and watering my seeds of bitterness. A year or so later, still having not had any conversation with said coworker about the event, that coworker, whenever they spoke, even if they were complimenting me, their voice, just hearing their voice, was like nails on a chalkboard. I could not stand it. I don't know if you've ever been like that with someone. If you've ever gotten to a place where that's how you, your just visceral, emotional response to someone is. Now, my example, it pales in comparison to Joseph. Joseph's really been burned by God's family, right? Or he's been burned by the church, if you will. He was powerless before, but now, now he's on the cusp of his Count of Monte Cristo moment, if you will. Right? For those of you who had to read that in school, you know what I'm saying. So what's the play? How do those in God's family today usually deal with this? And we stop and we think, you know, do we stop and, we, and think rationally, take the time to consider God's word? What are we to do? I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be that Satan's plan is to use sin to get us to hurt one another and then to use that hurt to divide God's family. That can't possibly be what God's Word says, right? We can't possibly see that over and over and over again, even in the book of Genesis. It couldn't be that God is able to fix any of these things, and, and He certainly doesn't, I mean, He certainly doesn't make any promises to do anything about our sinfulness, right? Fix it in any way. It, it couldn't be that God uses these things in, our, in the lives of His children to refine them into the character of His Son. Couldn't be. It couldn't be that God can use these things to reveal His own glory as His children are miraculously reconciled to one another despite the difficulties that come up. It couldn't be that. 
Couldn't be that the Bible communicates any of those things. No. We look at this story and we think, Joseph didn't ask his brothers to walk back into his life. Look, look, he was sold into slavery. He rose up the ranks, if you will, to his moment of glory. He was just fine without them walking back into his life. This is all very inconvenient and very uncomfortable for Joseph. I mean, just when he gets to a place where he's fine with how things are, now all of a sudden the brothers show up looking for grain? Are you kidding me? I think Joseph's best bet here is to stay hidden. Stay, stay hidden. Don't let anyone know who he is. Don't try to know anything about the brothers, right? You know, you don't kill or maim the, the brothers, right? That's not Christ-like. You know, don't get revenge. That's not Christ-like. But if he can, make sure his brothers are as far away from him as possible. Don't let them really know who he is. Don't let people... In fact, actually, it'd be best for Joseph if he just doesn't let anyone in at all, you know? Because that kind of, like him caring about his brothers earlier kind of put him in a, in a position of being hurt. And, you know, he's kind of snake bitten now, and so it's best just to stay away from all the snakes. So just kind of create this shield, if you will, around himself. You know, even better, if, if they could just be God's family over there somewhere in Canaan, and he could be God's family over here in Egypt, that that would really be ideal. Then I wouldn't have to think about it. I wouldn't have to deal with it. I mean, this is really a, a close call for Joseph. Whew. Hopefully he can get out of it. You know, at some point, at some point you and I might find ourselves thrust into one of these uncomfortable and inconvenient situations, Right? And so I want to answer a question for us this morning. You know, I want to give you some help because when you're put in this kind of uncomfortable and inconvenient situation, and, and listen, God doesn't want us to be in uncomfortable and inconvenient situations. I mean, just look at Jesus' life, right? So I'd, I'd hate for you to be in one of these situations, and so I've got some, some tips for you today. I've got some steps, if you will. The question is this, how can we avoid being reconciled in the church? I mean, because no one wants to do that. Oh, my word. That. <sighs> Talk about uncomfortable and inconvenient. But don't worry. Don't worry this morning. I'm going to bail you out. It turns out that it's really easy to not be reconciled to people. I've got four easy steps for you. Just four easy steps to avoid reconciliation in the church, all right? Four easy steps. If, you, if you're confused, I'm being facetious. This is sarcasm. Okay. How to avoid being reconciled in the church? Let me, let me give, you, give you the... Uh, I'm not saying these are the only steps you can take. I'm just saying these steps will work, okay? Step one. Root your bitterness deeply. 
I mean, plant that sucker as deep as you can. I find that the best thing to do is to stew about it. No, 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 no. No, actually, the best thing to do is not to stew about it. That's the second best thing to do. The best thing to do is to gossip about it. Because you don't know why it's so great to gossip about it? Because then you share the bounty of what you're growing, right? You, you get to share it with other people. You're not only planting it in your heart, you get to plant it in someone else's heart too. Fantastic. And they can help water and fertilize it. Oh, it's so great. No, we start this passage with Joseph. And he's not able to control his emotions, right? I mean, he's wept a few times as he's had this interchange with his brothers, but now he's so overwhelmed with emotion. And, and we, ex- we might expect that, actually. I mean, with everything that's happened, you might expect that he'd be overcome with emotion, but it turns out that his emotion is not anger or bitterness, is it? He's overcome with love and grace and mercy for his brothers and compassion. I believe all along his heart has been yearning to express that grace and be reconciled to his brothers, and yet, and yet he didn't immediately reveal it. And, and I think that there are two related reasons why he had waited till this moment to reveal who he truly was, and I think it's helpful to us. First, while we can and should have hearts of grace towards those who sin against us, while we ought to at any point be ready to forgive that person, we can't have true reconciliation unless the offending party actually repents of the wrongs that they've done. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Now, we ought to have hearts of grace towards them. We ought to, as Joseph was and as his actions reveal, as he weeps when he hears his brothers talking in in, in their own language and doesn't realize that they know what, he's, what they're saying and he weeps when they hear them talking about him and what they've done and their sorrow and regret for it. But until they've repented, until true repentance happens, as we talked about last week, true reconciliation can't happen. The second part of, I think, the reason that he has withheld his identity up to this point is because there's actually, Joseph and his brothers are in a really unique situation, one in which most of us will not find ourselves in, where Joseph actually holds in his hands the lives of his brothers, the very lives of his brothers. And uh, uh, say it another way, and if they may, if he was to reveal himself, they may fake their repentance solely to avoid death or prison. And true repentance is so important here. As much as Joseph wants to extend grace, he wants it to be genuine reconciliation, not fake reconciliation, not, you know, posing as reconciliation, but genuine reconciliation. So he withholds his identity until Judah pledges himself and offers himself in return for Benjamin, and he realizes, no, this is, this is real. It's, it's real sorrow for actual sin, not just trying to avoid consequences. And so, when that happens, he is overwhelmed with emotion. And the point here is this, don't be rooted in bitterness. Instead, root yourself in God's grace. 
Don't be rooted in bitterness. Instead, root yourself in God's grace. God doesn't just magically make our sin disappear. Even when we repent, we've, to, even when I repent to you because of something I've done to you, I've still also wronged God and that account is negative. Someone has to take on that debt and God in His grace through Christ, He's taken that debt on for you and me rather than bitterly holding it against us. And He gives us His righteousness even in our unrighteousness. That's what Christ has done for us. And if we, rather than rooting ourselves in bitterness based on the things that someone has done or or what we perceive to be what they have done to us, if we would root ourselves in God's grace, remembering all that Christ has done for us when we didn't deserve it, might we have a different result. And so in the words of Spurgeon, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Step two, how to avoid reconciliation. Oh, use your power for revenge. Whatever power you have, leverage that for as much revenge as you can get. That will make sure, I mean, that's how you make sure that you don't have to be reconciled to someone. I mean, what's, how's the saying go? Strike first, strike hard, right? When Joseph announces himself, it says that his brothers could not answer him. Words could not come out of their mouth, for they were dismayed at his presence. This word dismayed that we find here in the text it is a word uh, that often refers to uh, paralysis, a paralyzing fear in war. And when we see it used in the Old Testament, usually it's of soldiers who realize that their army is going to be destroyed by the opposing army, and they are dismayed. See, the brothers see this revelation of the person who is Lord over all of Egypt being the brother that they sold into slavery. They, they, they realize that, and they're dismayed because they think it's their demise rather than their salvation. But what does Joseph do? Verse 4, come near to me, please. Let, just allow those words to hang for just a second. Come near to me, please, says the Lord of all of Egypt. He says, please, to his brothers who sold them into slavery, sold them into slavery. He has their life their very life in his hands, he could in a moment say, kill these men, and no one would question it. And he says, please, come near to me, brothers. He's over the top, kind and gentle, in the manner in which he speaks to his brothers. And I think this is an important point for all of us. When someone, listen, when someone refuses to repent of their sin, there is a time to speak firmly And there is a time to speak even harshly to them. And Jesus himself, speaking to the unrepentant so-called religious leaders, tells them that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day, that day of judgment, than for them. That's harsh. This is just one example of how Christ speaks to those who are unrepentant. 
And yet, when someone is already repentant of their sins, you don't have to speak harshly to them. You can be gentle. You ought to be gentle. Listen, when your wife has already apologized, she doesn't need you to stand around and grimace at her. Okay? When you're When your husband has already admitted his mistake, he doesn't need you to remind him of it and nag about it. When your kids are clearly sorry for breaking the thing that they've broken, they don't need you to give them an extended lecture over it. They know they've done wrong. They don't need to be told 20 times for an hour. We can speak gently. What do, what do people need? What do the brothers need in order for reconciliation happens to, to happen? They, they need two things that Joseph extends. First, first, I want you to see that he speaks honestly to them about what has occurred. Gently doesn't mean dishonestly. Gently doesn't mean a lack of clarity. Gently doesn't mean avoiding the th- saying the thing. He says directly, whom you sold into Egypt, right? Quote, because you sold me here. That's, that's pretty straightforward and pretty clear. Being kind and gentle does not mean ignoring the facts or the truth. In fact, we have to be clear in order to be kind, don't we? Or else his brothers are going to be left wondering, well, what exactly did he forgive us for? Did he forgive us for that? Or is he still holding that against us? Listen, especially in marriage, husbands and wives, your 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 spouse needs to hear you clearly identify the thing you've done wrong and clearly, as best as you can, identify the thing that you're forgiving the person for. Okay? It's so important. It will save you so much confusion and heartache in the long run. At the same time, he doesn't belabor the point. He doesn't personally attack them. He doesn't say, well, because you were total punk jerks and you sold me because you're the worst brothers like in the history of brothers. He doesn't say that, you know. That title kind of goes to Cain, I think, but whatever. second thing. So, speak honestly about what happened. He speaks honestly about it, but then the second thing, he asks them to come near, and they come near, and he tells them not to be distressed or to be angry. He's honest about it, but he doesn't remove his presence. The mess is on the table, and now they need relational reassurance from him. And we get no indication that he ever brings these events up again. We get no indication that Joseph is constantly reminding the brothers, yeah, but you sold me into slavery, but yeah, but you remember you sold me into slavery. No, actually, the only indication we get is the brothers bring it back up when Jacob dies in a few chapters. And what does Joseph say? He reassures them again in the same way. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to kill you. Listen, if you forgive your wife, and then you refuse to be in her presence for the next 24 hours, I might suggest your heart isn't gracious like it should be. 
If you discipline your kids and then you stand far off and aloof from them, you aren't communicating the kind of firm but loving family structure that's needed for kids to survive, to thrive. The point is here that revenge and reconciliation, they don't mix. Instead, we're called to use our power to serve, not to get revenge. You see, Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? Because the world is already condemned. And that doesn't mean, when we say that Christ came to serve, it doesn't mean that he gave up his power. Actually, far from it, he leveraged his power in service to us on the cross to win victory over sin and Satan and death on our behalf. God had sent Joseph, it says in verse 5, but he did it to preserve their lives, to preserve life, not to take it. If you've if you, have right, if you rightly have authority from God, heaven forbid you give it up. God gave it to you, but heaven forbid you use it selfishly. God gave it to you. And that brings us to the next way to avoid reconciliation. If you don't want to be reconciled, ignore what God is doing. This is a really good way to avoid being reconciled. You just kind of put a blinder on to all the things that God is, is doing, you know. I mean... Listen, it's not really like God has a great track record in the past of taking really bad situations and, you know, what's the word, um, resurrecting them. Why should we expect that to happen again, right? It's not only what God has done, but it's also what God is doing and will do. Joseph goes on to say that we're only in year two of seven years of famine, But God is using Joseph specifically to preserve not only the people of Egypt, but specifically the house of Jacob. Verse 7, it says, quote, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And we know that while 70 may come into Egypt, that a multitude will come out of Egypt. This is the central point, I think, for Joseph. God is behind all of this. Do you recognize it in those difficult situations? That even if people have sinned, even if everything seems like a mess, that God, by His sovereign power, is working it out, that He has a plan, and He is in control. And what's God doing? Well, first, He's bringing the world to salvation through the church. When Jesus says that the world will know him by our love for one another, by our, by our unity, did, did, did we think that he was describing that we'd never have any fights or disagreements? That we'd never hurt one another? That we'd never need to forgive one another? Or perhaps, perhaps just maybe, it's that Christian community has I don't, some resource that the rest of the world doesn't have, that enables us to survive the kinds of things that the, a worldly community cannot survive. That enables us to survive when one another sin against each other. That enables us to actually forgive, really truly forgive one another when the world would not forgive. See, the world has two strategies. Pretend like nothing went wrong 
or pretend like everything went wrong, and there's no redeeming of it. And we as believers have a different outlook. No, that really is sin, and no, I really do forgive you. There really can be grace. I appreciate the words of Francis Schaeffer on his, in his booklet, The Mark of a Christian. He says this, what divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians, what leaves a bitterness that lasts 20, 30, 40 years, invariably it is a lack of love. And the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. Tell me, tell me, are there people in the world who are looking for a community where people are reconciled to one another instead of just canceled? People looking for that community. Second, second thing that God is doing, He's forming us into the likeness of Christ. He walks us through these difficult things these places where we have to be reconciled to one another in order to form us into the likeness of Christ. These situations aren't just obstacles when a sovereign God is involved. As Romans 8 tells us, they're the means through which God uses to conform us to the likeness of His Son. I love how one author put it. He said, He said, the local congregation, the church, the local church is one of the very best laboratories in which individual believers may discover their real spiritual emptiness and begin to grow in love. Do you realize that when we are together in spiritual community with one another, that it's not so that everything can go swimmingly well, but sometimes the conflicts and the disagreements that we have are actually the things God uses to show us how spiritually empty we are in some place. To show us the areas of our life that are void of Christ and His love that need to be filled with Christ. To grow us in love, to teach us how to love one another. If, if it was easy to love everyone that's sitting across the pew from you, that ain't much love, is it? Anyone could do that. No. No, those relationships, those personality differences, those relational faux pas, they expose our unsanctified jealousies and desires. They reveal our immaturities and the feebleness of our love. Not to shame us or embarrass us, but that we might actually reach down deep into the well of Christ and pull up living water to drink from. Heaven forbid a Christian community depend on Christ. The point is reconciliation isn't isn't an unfortunate penance that we have to pay or we have to put up in order to stay saved. No, reconciliation preserves a a remnant. Reconciliation is a life-giving thing. Joseph was sent to preserve life. God's sovereign, if we fail 
to recognize his sovereignty, we will feel trapped in a corner, clawing and scratching, right? Sinning in response because we don't know what else to do in order to survive the painful situation we're in. And listen, we've all been there. I've been there. I've been there where I've felt cornered and I've lashed out like a like an animal crawling, you know, clawing and scratching just to, because I think I need to just survive. And then later on, I'm thinking, what was I doing? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I trust God in that? We may be dismayed like the brothers when we fail to recognize God's sovereignty We may find ourselves dismayed like the brothers, and we might find ourselves seeking revenge rather than reconciliation. You see, Jesus had another way of going about it, right? And He's truly our model for this. He recognized that God was working something through Him, even through His betrayal, even through His death, to save many, to shape His disciples for the battle ahead. I think parents especially, let me speak to you, the way in which you navigate the difficult circumstances, the relational issues between yourselves and other people, listen, your kids are watching. They're watching and they're learning and you're discipling them to something. And if you check out because it's too hard, then they may just check out because it's too hard too. Who's to say that the difficulties that you're going through may not actually be for them more than for you? Step four, you want to avoid reconciliation? This is a good one. Settle for a ceasefire. You want to know why this is such a good way to avoid reconciliation? It's such a good way to avoid reconciliation because it can look really Christian. You can look really good and do this one and yet not actually be for Christ and what he wants. That's why it's such a good way to avoid reconciliation. Too often we do a lot of work to maybe uh, have some, kind of, some sort of forgiveness in someone for the past offenses that they've, they've committed, but then we, we find that no reconciliation happens there. One of the things I'm learning is that we, we settle for ceasefires instead of peace treaties. There's a big difference between a ceasefire and a peace treaty, right? One, you just agree to not continue to take shots at the other person. But in a peace treaty, you actually seek peaceful relationship with them. Ceasefire means you refrain from causing more damage. And listen, that's not nothing. I mean... That's hard in and of itself, let's all admit the reality of it. That could be difficult. Because sometimes I've got, I've got ammo locked and loaded and I want to let her rip, you know? I've been brewing on a good one for a while and I'm just looking for the opportunity to shoot that sucker. But a peace treaty is more than just not firing at someone else. Peace treaties work towards trust, relationship. You know what it is? Peace treaties take risk, don't they? They take risk. 
Three differences that we can see in the text between ceasefires and peace treaties, just to kind of play on this analogy a little bit and flesh it out. Ceasefires avoid trust whenever possible. Peace treaties take appropriate risk. Look at verses 9 through 11. Joseph urges his brothers to go and to get the rest of the family and to bring them to Egypt. Come down to me, he says. You shall be near me, he says. In a ceasefire, we avoid trust. It's less likely that we would be in a situation where someone can, you know, even accidentally fire on us again. If I keep my distance from you, if I, if I don't take risk, then you can't, you can't stab me in the back again, right? Listen, it's true that trust doesn't come back all at once, and we shouldn't expect it to. We need to remember that fact. But that fact also doesn't mean that we don't take risk at all. Here, Joseph not only takes risk, but in fact, he provides for his brothers to the extent that he is able to. And listen, for peace treaties to work, typically the person with the the biggest firepower, if you will, they need to turn their power into provision for the other. They need to make space for the other person to live and breathe. And the other party, the brothers in this instance, they need to be willing to take the risk that it isn't, that, that they're not being invited into this space so that the other person can use their close-range weapons, if you will, but that they might actually be seeking peace. And so, ceasefires avoid trust. Peace treaties take appropriate and progressive risk, right? Second way, they're different. Ceasefires avoid problems whenever possible. Peace treaties seek right remedies. Verses 12 through 13, he tells them, now that you see it's truly me, go tell your father and bring him here. Now, that doesn't seem all too surprising, right? But, but think about what this would mean. Think about the implications of what he's telling his brothers to do. It would mean that they, the brothers, would have to go and explain to Jacob why Joseph is alive in Egypt. Why he's alive and not dead. The fact that he wasn't actually eaten by a beast, right? And where did they come up with his, you know, coat then that was covered in blood? And why is he happened to be in Egypt? Because I promise you they're not waiting for him to get to Egypt for Joseph to tell him. They would have had to have confessed what they did to him, to Joseph, and how, and what they did to Jacob, how they lied to him for 20 years and allowed him to just live for 20 years in a place of going, man, I'm, I'm, one, I'm one shoestring away from my gray head going down to Sheol because I've lost my son. Think about the emotional weight that these brothers put on Jacob because of their lie, because of what they did. These brothers would have to be reconciled to their dad as well. See, see, ceasefires, they seek to avoid any future problems. Their concern, the mindset of those who are in ceasefire mode is, how can I just, just purely avoid any future headaches? If there's a, 
If there could be a minefield here, I'm going to avoid it at all costs because I just don't want to set off a mine. But peace treaties, you know what they do? They go minesweeping. That's what peace treaties do. They go minesweeping and they look for the mines and they diffuse them and they get rid of them one by one, progressively. Doesn't happen all at once. Doesn't happen all at once. It could take a long time, but it's a different mindset. That's what I want to get across to you. It's a different heart posture. Because listen, if that minefield is still there, you might be able to avoid it, but someone else in God's family is going to step on it. And so you don't, you don't actually do God's kingdom too much service just to save you some headaches. Last difference that I want to bring out, ceasefires avoid relating whenever possible. Peace treaties are open to relational progress. That's really, that's really the difference, isn't it? Ceasefires go, okay, we're not going to fire on each other, but I'm going to sit over here on my side ready to go just in case you shoot the first bullet. And the other side's doing the same. But peace treaties are different. They're open to relational progress. Now the passage ends with a very emotional scene that I want to highlight for us. Again, Joseph, being in this place of greater leadership, greater maturity, he takes the lead here and he starts with Benjamin and we kind of expect that. You know, he falls on Benjamin's neck and he weeps over him and they have this just touching brotherly moment, but then it ends with this little phrase that, I, that is so easy to overlook, and I don't want you to, to miss this. It says, after that, his brothers talked with him. And you might think, why does that matter? Why even say that? Of course they talked to him. But listen, the last time the brothers spoke to Joseph, knowing that it was Joseph they were speaking, speaking to, what did it, how did it describe it? Do you remember all the way back at the beginning when, when Joseph was 17 years old? Do you remember what it said? They cannot speak a word peacefully to him. They could not speak peacefully with him. Quite literally, the last time these brothers spoke to Joseph, knowing that it was Joseph, they could not get a single word out of their mouth to him that was peaceful in any way, that cared about him in any way. Even when he first reveals himself to them, what does it say? They're dismayed and they couldn't talk. This right here is the first moment where they could talk to him. And then they were reconciled. And the brothers talked with him. You see, while ceasefires may mean not speaking unpeacefully to someone. Peace treaties look for ways to relate and progress in that relationship appropriately. And we, you know, we don't know how close Joseph became with all of his brothers in the future. We know, you know, from the future passages that happened that there must have been some sort of relational awkwardness that still existed there, you know. It'd probably never be the same as if they had never sold him into slavery, but yet we see a heart that is looking for that we see signs of relational progress. Here's, here's my point. Reconciliation assumes a relationship. I'm not trying to make some sort of legalistic rules here. Uh, that would miss the heart of the matter, which I think, in fact, is your heart towards the other person. 
The point here isn't to, and, and, and really the reason why I have presented this in the reverse is I didn't want to give you four steps to reconciliation because it doesn't really work like that. What, we, what our hearts do when we start to do that is we, we just go, look, I checked off the four legalistic boxes that Pastor Cody told me I needed to, and it didn't work, and so I'm uh, absolved from having a heart towards this person. And that would miss the whole point, wouldn't it? The point is, do you have a heart that yearns for reconciliation with others? Because Christ has a heart that yearns for reconciliation with others. So much so, his heart burns for it so much that he came to earth, took on human flesh, died on a cross to make it happen. So we may not ever end up being, you know, BFFs with the person that hurt us. In fact, there may be ways you can relate and ways you can't relate or shouldn't with that individual. And we recognize that reconciliation takes both parties, like I said earlier, and so that's not, you you can't have only one person sign a peace treaty. That's not how peace treaties work. But is our heart a heart looking for reconciliation? Church, what Christ did for us is not only to forgive the sins of our past, but that we would be actually reconciled to our Father. And He has given us, those who have been reconciled, a ministry of reconciliation, God's Word says, that the world would be reconciled to Him as well. And He's entrusted us with the message of reconciliation, it says. And we're Christ's ambassadors, and God is making His appeal to a dying world through us, a bunch of people who struggle to be reconciled with one another. Those are the people he gives his message and his ministry to. That doesn't make any sense to me, I'm going to be honest. That's baffling on on the face of it, is it not? How can we pull that off? The reality is we can't. We can't. And I think that's the point, that God's power would be shown in our weakness. That when brothers are reconciled, everyone goes, that's not about the brothers. That's got to be about Jesus. That when we read the story of Joseph, if you had never read the book of Genesis again, all signs would be pointing towards here comes another Cain and Abel. But it's not. Because Joseph believes in God's promises. That's his sovereign plan. That just when you think it's time to fold, Jesus lays down a royal flesh. So here's the bottom line. Reconciliation in God's family depends on recognition of God's sovereignty, lest we should think that we did it instead of Him. And I'll tell you, God eventually convicted me of my bitterness towards my coworker all those years ago. And I did confess my bitterness. I asked for forgiveness, not only to that individual person, but in front of the entire staff team, because 
because my bitterness was a poison to everyone. Because everyone had been affected by it and everyone had seen it, whether they knew where it came from or not. And so I sat in front of the entire staff and I said, yeah, this is the ickiest place my heart has ever been. That's on me. Would you all forgive me? And the situation did improve tremendously, but what I see now that I couldn't see then was that in some ways I had committed to a ceasefire and not a peace treaty. Largely due to my decision to not deal with the issues in a timely manner, right? Because by the time that I had actually uh, brought that up, the, the other person couldn't even remember what the conversation even was. <laughs> they had no recollection of it. In fact, probably most of what I remembered was my own playback of the thing, not actually any true facts of it. And that's my fault, not theirs. So John Calvin said this, he said, if a preacher is not first preaching to himself, better that he falls on the steps of the pulpit and breaks his neck than preaches that sermon. I like to think that he was speaking in exaggerated terms, but I'm not sure he was. And I'm not sure that I've ever had a season in my life where there was more in my sermons for myself to chew on than I have in the sermons I've been preparing here recently. Whether I'm applying God's word to a situation that happened 10 days ago or 10 years ago, it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard work to do. And I don't get it right all the time. But I'm trying by God's grace. I'm asking him to show me, repenting where I need to repent. And earlier this week, I wrote and sent a letter to that coworker. In part, in part to call out my lack of effort all those years ago towards true reconciliation, to let them know that I recognized my deficiency there, to encourage them. Listen, I know it's hard and painful. We don't want to deal with the fresh stuff. It's, it's too fresh. It's too close. And no one wants to dig up the old stuff, right? Well, that's so long ago. Why would I want to why would I want to dig that up? They, don't, they wouldn't want that to be dug up. But if the, the root of that old stuff is bitterness in your heart, then you need to dig it out. You need to dig it out. For your own sanctification, for our church, for God's kingdom and his mission in the world. Listen, these situations are hard to navigate, and we're not going to get it perfect all the time. We're not going to do it right in every single way. We're not going to. But may we be known as ministers of reconciliation, not murderers of brothers. For Christ's sake, be reconciled. Because for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.